Welcome to the Things Learned Podcast. My name is Steve, and these are some of the notable things that I learned during the 33rd and 34th weeks of 2011. August 15th, making tables using only divs. I was well on my way to liberation from the old world of the HTML table tag. This is a modest follow-up to the thing learned from July 5th, where I learned how to make a table in a div. Interestingly, I think this is a more or less reworded version of that thing learned, which was, quote, how to replicate a table in a div, but perhaps more refined to ensure that no legacy tags were needed in this new iteration. It seems I was really on a roll with this topic, as I would revisit it again on August 17th, simply stating that I refined the method even further without elaboration. There seems to be some debate on a Stack Overflow post dating back to 2014 with user Homer6 stating that, quote, HTML tables are appropriate for representing tabular data just don't use tables for general layout. Tables are still better for tabular data, though. End quote. This quote is interesting because the same guy goes on to then demonstrate an easy way to produce a table using only the div tags. When looking up some information to attempt to distinguish the two forms of table generation, I found a link on tabulizer.com explaining that while the web content accessibility guidelines don't necessarily set in stone which to use, it is instead recommended to try to stick to CSS for layout tables. When it comes to HTML tables, this link does back up the claims made on Homer 6's post on Stack Overflow, indicating that table tags do better for tabular data. In the end, though, I'm left with a bit of an unclear vision as to which is better, but personally, if I had to choose, I'd go with using div tags to formulate the tables, with CSS defining the layout. Hooray for somewhat confusing HTML standards. August 16th. The Wii and Xbox Rock Band drum set motherboards are only slightly different, Manufacturing peripherals for a video game that exists on multiple platforms is an interesting and surprisingly complicated process. As time has progressed with advancements in technology, specifically with Bluetooth unifying a lot of wireless controller architectures, a lot of this discussion may have been very different had this technology been more widely adopted during the original planning phases of rock band instruments. The first Rock Band title launched in 2007 for the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 in the initial phase, with the PlayStation 2 and Wii versions released months later. Now considering how each console platform was owned by a different company with incompatible hardware and software, it was important to carefully choose which system you wanted to invest in as well as note the longevity of your selected console and how easily it would be to obtain the instruments and downloadable content. For example, if you purchased Rock Band on the PS2, you would effectively be locked out of the downloadable content ecosystem, 
as the PS2 did not support an expandable content delivery platform outside of purchasing trackpack compilation discs. Furthermore, on the PS2, you had to purchase PS2-specific guitars and drum kits, which luckily had a path forward regarding compatibility with future Sony consoles at least, all the way up to present day with Rock Band 4 even, as long as you had the necessary adapters. So ideally, one might consider PS2 instruments along with the PS3 version of Rock Band, so you have a decent range of instrument compatibility and future-proofing all the way up to present day, combined with the full version of Rock Band that was capable of downloadable content, which then was also largely forwards compatible with future Rock Band titles. On the Xbox, we have a bit of a different story. The Xbox 360 version of Rock Band had both wired and wireless instrument variations. While all of these would work on the Xbox 360 during the span of its lifetime, the Xbox One and beyond dropped native compatibility with these instruments, only offering a wireless legacy adapter for wireless guitars and drum kits. The only wired instruments allowed to come over were microphones, Supposedly, this was a choice made by Microsoft as opposed to developer Harmonix, which is admittedly frustrating. On the software front, I distinctly recall the Xbox 360 versions of Rock Band somehow being treated better than the PS3 ones, as I recall hearing bizarre stories of DLC being released in delayed fashion on the latter platform. Combine this with the still-maturing PlayStation Store compared to Xbox Live's ecosystem, and personally, it just made more sense to go with Microsoft at the time, especially considering that I already owned an Xbox 360 with Guitar Hero 2, which included a guitar that worked up to Rock Band 3. The Wii also received a variation of each Rock Band game, with various features pared down or adjusted to fit the weaker console, akin to the PlayStation 2's release. However, the Wii version managed to support downloadable content, so this feature remained intact. Unfortunately, if you owned the Wii version, you were forever stuck with the Wii, as Rock Band never released on any future Nintendo system past this generation, and I'm not super confident Nintendo would have played ball with the efforts to bring the DLC forward compared to other platforms anyway. At least you got every game from the mainline series up through Rock Band 3 on the console, so you weren't out of luck during its heyday at least. So now we're faced with the issue of instrument availability, and what that means is if you happen to have one lying around, but it's for a differing console platform, you can't necessarily use it. Today's Thing Learned observed that the circuit boards of the drum kits specifically were somewhat similar to one another but had tweaks made to each one to work with its respective platform. This makes sense from a manufacturing standpoint, as you can reduce part complexity by reusing components, only making incremental changes to a board to make it Wii, Sony, or Microsoft compatible. In the modern day, both Guitar Hero and Rock Band instruments have become very hard to find, with no official production or new instruments being made. This leaves folks to scour the internet or thrift shops to find the controllers they need, and complicating this process 
is the fragmented platform-specific instruments. Nothing is more frustrating than finding a perfectly functional Wii or PS3 drum kit, but your Rock Band platform of choice was the Xbox, so you cannot use it. One could in theory do a board swap, but that requires another sacrificial kit or spare parts. I even found one crafty guide that shows how to utilize the board of a Rock Band drum kit and transplant it into a homegrown e-kit adapter for use with real drum kits. I wish the Bluetooth controller standard was more of a thing in the old days, and if it was, perhaps controller compatibility could have been slightly better. But unfortunately, the Xbox 360 used some proprietary wireless format, while the PS2 required dongles for its wireless controllers. While the PS3 and Wii used some form of Bluetooth, they seem to have done so in a somewhat proprietary manner for this specific case. In modern times, every console uses Bluetooth for its wireless controller connectivity, and through some futzing, one can get them to work between the consoles without much hassle. Had this been more of a norm in 2007, I think the instrument compatibility and availability situation would have been in a much better place compared to where it is now. August 19th, the HP touchpad can run Android. Some pivotal moments of history could have been so much different had one parameter been altered. One such moment in time was the HP touchpad and its comedy of errors leading to a speed run of a product that of which might have stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the iPad of its day, had it been shipped with a different operating system and given more of a chance. Back in episode 38, I went over the history of the HP touchpad, covering its launch on July 1st, 2011, to its discontinuation and fire sale just about a month later, which now conveniently brings us roughly in the ballpark of today's thing learned in mid-August. Simply put, the wrong people in the wrong places at the wrong times, with the wrong strategies, doomed this product from ever succeeding. However, let's have some fun and do some what-ifing about a timeline that might have been. If HP A had a competent CEO at the time, B was more aware of a market hungry for a viable alternative to the iPad, and C saw the writing on the wall for the adoption rate of webOS in terms of apps and user base compared to Androids, we might have seen a much more optimistic picture be painted for our poor touchpad. I'm not entirely sure where I read the first indication that the touchpad was capable of Android on August 19th specifically, however I do remember it lighting up the tech news of the time period. Around August 22nd, 2011, hackandmod.com announced a bounty of 450 US dollars for merely a basic port of Android to the HP touchpad. Three days later, Engadget learned that some of the buyers of an HP touchpad during its fire sale booted the device up to an Android logo of all things. The theory was that somewhere deep within the labs of HP, there were indeed experimental units running Android as opposed to webOS, and in the chaos of the liquidation, some of these units made it out into the wild. Once the build was in the hands of the community, the rest, you might say, was history. From here, ROMs were dumped, builds were made, 
devices were rooted, mods were installed, and the short-lived tablet supply found itself with a second life when it no longer mattered. Alan Scheimel of NetworkWorld.com praised the performance of the Cyanogen mod flavors of Android, which came to the touchpad, extending the life of the tablet far beyond the dead end of WebOS, which had long since dried up in terms of apps and updates. As of 2019, it was even possible to run Android 9, aka Pi, on the vintage tablet, a truly impressive feat. Like the Sega Dreamcast, it doesn't necessarily matter how great a platform is. If there is no long-term support for updates, future prospects tend to be quite limited. It's an unfortunate consequence of consumer electronics. August 20th. Adobe Air apparently causes space issues on macOS Lion. A relic from a now bygone era, Adobe Air was seemingly inescapable for about a decade. Adobe says it best, quote, Since its release in 2008, the Adobe Air runtime has enabled developers to create and deploy Flex, ActionScript, and HTML-based content as standalone desktop apps, as well as native iOS and Android apps running on mobile devices since 2010, end quote. Along the older and longer-lived Flash player, Adobe Air existed for easy cross-platform apps and content. One notorious example of an Adobe Air app was the lobby client for League of Legends, known as PvP.net, which stuck around until about 2016 or so, before it was transitioned over to a more standard HTML5 app. I don't exactly have the greatest memories of this platform, as it was sort of slow, annoying, required frequent manual updates, and in the worst cases, took up quite a bit of disk space, on the Mac in particular. As to whether or not this was exclusive to macOS Lion, I'm not entirely convinced, but there's at least a small bit of evidence from a couple of Apple discussion threads mentioning the problem. Supposedly, one of the biggest problems with Adobe Air was its tendency to create thousands of small files, which can stress out an operating system in terms of just trying to get a handle on the inventory. I think this was ironed out in subsequent updates. This combined with diligent maintenance and cleanup of said log files was enough to resolve the issue. It looks like between roughly 2010 and 2018, there are about 109 security vulnerabilities in Adobe Air, so one also had to make sure it was constantly up to date to avoid malware and other potential security problems. I have a hunch that this might have been one of the supporting arguments for Adobe to ditch this platform, as they also would have to make similar efforts when sunsetting Adobe Flash shortly after taking out Adobe Air. If you still really can't let go of air, some joke intended here, apparently the technology lives on in a company called Harman, owned by Samsung. I don't think anyone actually needs to go to this extreme, but hey, full disclosure. August 22nd, JDisk Report works on macOS Lion if you use the Java version. On the subject of platforms with tons of security vulnerabilities, Java is another albatross of the tech world. 
While it is undoubtedly a great utility for cross-platform development, and begrudgingly and arguably a half-decent first-time programmer's language, Java isn't without its baggage. Apple isn't a fan of keeping legacy tech around, and Java has a knack for doing just that. For a long time, Apple would bundle Java right into macOS, but starting with 10.7 Lion, this courtesy ended. While Lion certainly supported Java, you had to install it separately, and what version you installed depended on what application you needed to run. Enter JDiskReport, a then-handy but somewhat old utility that relied on an older version of Java to run. This program allowed you to figure out what was taking up disk space, highlighting files and folders that ate up gigabytes of storage, giving one the tools to make an informed decision on cleanup, something macOS sorely lacks, even up to this day, I'd argue. I would use this program to figure out who was taking up the most disk space on our video storage system, XSAN. When we were about to run out of space, I would fire up JDiskReport, sort by user folders taking up the most disk space, take some screenshots, and send some nasty grams. I remember this application working just fine in 10.5 Leopard and 10.6 Snow Leopard, but when we jumped to Lion, nothing doing. As a clarification, I believe all versions of JDiskReport technically run on top of Java, so this thing learned is worded a little bit awkwardly, but I'll clarify here. Due to the aforementioned Java runtime installation bundling changes, alongside the base version discrepancies, JDiskReport.app no longer worked like it used to. Instead, one had to download the raw jar file on their site, which worked with the latest and greatest Java versions. I found a Stack Exchange article more or less explaining what was the likely cause for the application's breakage. The jar file included inside the package contents was relying on a pretty old version of Java, 1.4 by the looks of it. By this point, it appears like Apple was looking to make Java 7 the baseline version for Lion, that of which was released in July of 2011, conveniently. For legacy versions, Apple provided a separate download that it prepared on its own, and Oracle themselves recommend using that to install legacy editions of Java. My guess is that this Lion-exclusive installer doesn't necessarily contain the right pieces to make the older JDiskReport application function properly. Older versions of Java have more and more issues and security problems to deal with, so there's also the conundrum of why would you even want to go that far to expose your system? JDiskReport still exists today, although it seems that the last stable release of 1.4.1 is from back around early 2014, well, the supposed version 2.0 in beta to this very day, although this has been the case since around 2015. Judging by rough estimates, via the totally not scientific method of looking through Wayback Machine snapshots of the site's downloads pages. Obviously, other utilities exist too, such as DiskWave, another somewhat old disk space examination program, which I eventually used over JDiskReport due to simpler methods of downloading and running. Of course, there's also no shortage of these types of tools in the Mac App Store, 
that of which I can't really speak to, but they do also exist. And finally, August 26th. Most people in the single dorms of my old dorm stayed there for another year. Closing out this episode with an anecdotal story. Apparently, most of the people that lived in the same floor and hallway that I was in remained there for the following semester at least. I don't blame them. The building was in a really convenient location, right next to a dining hall and geographically in the center of the campus, making a walk or bike ride to any location equidistant. I did find that these folks would keep to themselves, and while that certainly wasn't a problem, I felt a lack of social interaction in that dorm not felt at the school before. In the previous dorm I lived in, everyone always seemed to have their doors open, with tons of friendships and shenanigans always in full swing. So after just one year of living in this contrasting atmosphere, I decided to group back up with friends from my freshman and sophomore years and close out my college life in an on-campus apartment suite, that of which we were about to move into. Thus concludes the most interesting things learned of weeks 33 and 34. Quite a few other things of note were also going on during this time, during these busy two weeks right before the start of the school year. On August 19th, I received an email detailing what the housing department got done this past summer. One of the bullet points was that certain dorms finally got complete Wi-Fi coverage in all hallways, lounges, and rooms. That's kind of crazy to think about. Even in 2011, it wasn't always a guarantee that Wi-Fi would be available everywhere, and that the recommendation for most dorms was to hardwire via the Ethernet jacks located in each room, leading to tangled messes of wires and the need to arrange desks and furniture based on the often inconvenient location of these outlets. Running your own custom Wi-Fi wasn't allowed either, as it was against the official acceptable use policy for security reasons. Not like that exactly stopped a lot of students from still doing it, given the absurd lack of coverage, but it was what it was. Eventually, the school would come around to finally rectifying this issue with the student experience. I just think it's fascinating that it took this long for them to catch up. Designing, testing, and installing a coherent wireless infrastructure is no picnic. Believe me, I've lived that life. However, if you're paying a bajillion dollars to be at a university in an era where wireless internet was the standard, you'd think that they would have been a little bit more nimble in terms of staying current. On August 20th, I took a picture of the way in which I hold a Nintendo 64 controller. Apparently, I must have much bigger hands than the average person, as I never thought the recommended method of gripping the interestingly shaped controller was either comfortable or natural feeling. Instead of resting my left hand on the middle handle with the analog stick and Z button, I instead base it across the leftmost handle, extending my thumb to reach the analog stick in the middle. My right middle finger is on Z button duty, while my left index finger is able to cover the L button. This felt like a smarter and more complete way to hold the controller, and in retrospect, looks like it fits in with more modern controller layouts anyway. Other than hand size, I guess I'm not entirely sure why Nintendo, nor the greater internet, ever considered this grip style. 
Most Nintendo 64 game manuals of the era would recommend one of three grips based on the type of game you were playing. The controller was so awkwardly designed that often the developers of the games themselves had to design the game around the idea that they couldn't really feasibly count on the player to use a certain region of the controller if they were going to recommend one hold it using only two of the three handles. That being said, the method in which I held it covered the no man's land region of the left side, opening up the potential for using the D-pad and L button in games that didn't necessarily expect it. If your hands are big enough, I'd recommend trying this out, as it might improve your perception of the strange Nintendo 64 controller. After a brief stretch of literally nothing happening calendar-wise, the entire week of the 21st was go time for moving into the apartment and starting the fall semester off, but there was no time for boozing it up and getting senioritis. The day after moving in was the start of several start-of-the-school-year job trainings, student organization festivities, and the big IT help desk storming the dorms event coinciding with the move-in schedules with the rest of the university. My calendar was wild this week, with barely any time to even take a breather. It was relentlessly busy, but honestly this kind of stuff was what I lived for back then, as it contained a ton of variety and was endlessly exciting. Weebly.com sent me a rather strange automated email on August 24th stating, quote, You've been a Weebly user for 2 days, 16 hours, 8 minutes, and 47 seconds, but you still haven't published your website. I don't know why this was sent to me, as I made the account to assist with a collaboration project with someone else, but wow, what a pushy email. Would not recommend sending to someone. The remnants of Hurricane Irene hit the campus around August 28th and 29th, prompting a lot of organizations and groups on the campus to reschedule events, including the official housing move-in date window. The weather on the 28th called for tropical storm conditions with rain likely, heavy at times, before 5 p.m., with winds in the 40 to 50 mile per hour range, with gusts going as high as 55 miles per hour. The campus curtailed operations from 4 a.m. Sunday to 4 a.m. Tuesday as a result. Welcome back, students. Whoa, what a set of weeks. Quite a deluge of things learned, along with sheer busyness all around. When it rains, it pours. Literally. If you were wondering about the things learned that I skipped over during these two weeks, well, let's just say I don't think you really want or need to hear much more about minute details of League of Legends characters, making tables using divs and HTML continued, locations of events on campus, or random unfocused complaints about Apple XAN that I haven't already talked about. With that, we conclude this retrospective on 2011's 33rd and 34th weeks. Thanks for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this slightly tweaked new format for the show. I had a lot more fun talking about these focused items, and I think it's going to work out going forward. If you like this show and want to support it, I simply ask you to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate podcasts. Also, of course, feel free to follow the podcast so you are able to see any past, present, and future episodes. If you think someone else would enjoy this show, let them know and I'd greatly appreciate it. 
If it's your first time listening to Things Learned, welcome to the podcast, and I hope you liked it. And of course, if you're a returning listener, I thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time, have a good one, and I'll talk to you soon.